Welcome to Live from Tato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 22, World-Centered Education with Gert Bista. In this podcast, we have discussed different interpretations of Plato's allegory of the cave for 21 episodes. I've talked with philosophers, physicists, geologists, political scientists, artists, food experts, and other experts about how they read Plato's allegory of the cave. In this way, I want to offer you an educational resource that you can use to study whatever interests you in your life. So we take a different perspective each time, and Plato's allegory of the cave gives us a structure to come back to and to ask certain questions about this. But what does Plato himself say that the allegory is about? If you remember from episode 1, where Masha reads the entire allegory, he introduces it in this way. Compare the effect of education and the lack of it on our nature to an experience like this. Imagine human beings living under the earth in a cave-like dwelling. Etc. So Plato uses the allegory to say something about education. But what is education? In the allegory, Plato uses the word paideia. It's usually translated as education, but you can translate it in different ways. It's much broader than our current conception of education. So it can be translated as upbringing or as a combination of cultural development and maturity, becoming a grown-up person in all senses of the word. Our guide today, Gert Bista, criticizes the narrow sense in which we understand education in our society today in which it's seen as a system for producing learning outcomes and a function of society. We will discuss his latest book, World-Centered Education, which was published this year, in which he writes, Educational questions are fundamentally existential questions. That is, questions about how we try to exist as human beings, how we try to live our life in and with a world that is not of our making and that is under no obligation to give us what we want from it, or expect from it. Gert Bista is Professor of Public Education in the Center for Public Education and Pedagogy of the Mainland University in Ireland, and he is Professor of Educational Theory and Pedagogy at the Moray House School of Education and Sport of the University of Edinburgh in the UK where he's also deputy head of the Institute for Education, Teaching and Leadership. Gert has published many books about education. For instance, Good Education in the Age of Measurement, which came out in 2010, and The Beautiful Risk of Education, published in 2014. And he has also been involved in educational policy. For instance, in the Netherlands, from 2015 to 2018, he was a member of the Onderwijsraad, the Educational Council in the Netherlands. Well, Gert, thank you for being willing to speak with me about your book, World-Centered Education. My pleasure. I read it with a lot of pleasure. Uh, you've written many books already. Do you? I should know this, but how many books have you written? Uh... I've lost count. I think I've sort of <laughs> written as a as a single author about ten or yeah, somewhere in that range, and I've edited a lot and some co-authoring. Yeah. 
I really appreciate it that this is a, it's not a very a big book. It's about a hundred pages, yep. very concise, and it really goes to the core, <laughs> mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, and you address some very fundamental, so the book is about education, obviously, but you address some very fundamental questions like what is our basic relationship with the world around us? What is attention? Um, very yeah, existential issues. And my first question is, why is it necessary to, to go so deep in order to say what you have to say about education? I think, first of all, that's to, to do justice to education, I would say. Um, I meet a lot of people who think education is something practical and something easy. And when you begin to ask questions, then people say, well, you don't, don't do difficult. Or they say, oh, yeah, that's philosophy um, or it's abstract. Um, and, and I find that odd because I think education is, is one of the most important things we do as human beings with each other. It's, in a sense, fundamental to, to everything. Um, so it, it deserves, I think, really deep, if we can use that word, engagement, but um, careful engagement. And, and I think when you begin to do that, you see that uh, there, there are quite big questions that uh, require nuance. I think that's what I've been doing throughout my work. And each time you get a little closer or you you find better language to, to say the things you, you want to say. This is sort of the, the fifth book in what started out as a trilogy, but uh, now it's a, a <laughs> <laughs> um, And I think, yeah, I've, I also feel that I've managed to go to some, some really core questions about education. Um, and I also hint in the book that I say, may, well, this may be... A, Maybe I'm not going to write the sixth book. So I'm also thinking, well, if, if readers don't get it, <laughs> this book, then, yeah. then there isn't much for me to, to add to it. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I appreciated is that I really appreciate when you see in, in thinkers or philosophers when they say, well, actually, first I thought this about something, but now I have a, maybe a deeper understanding or or a different uh, uh, understanding. And this is what you do several points in, in the book. I also find it quite interesting that uh, <clears throat> a lot of people are involved in education. They do all kinds of things. And of course, a lot of that goes fine. So it's not that it's impossible to, to teach without all this theory. But it's quite remarkable that when people talk about what they are doing, mm. what they say is such a, a, a misconnection with what is actually happening. And I think that's that's also why I, I go to some yeah quite big discussions about what actually is is teaching and how is teaching fundamentally different from learning whereas most people i would say no it's all learning and yeah there are sort of teachers but well one day the the internet will replace them or artificial intelligence and then i think no wait a minute the teaching and being taught is is a 
a really profound and, and complicated phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it it really deserves to yeah I think to go into that and yeah. also I think there are a lot of other disciplines that that claim that they can tell what's happening in education. Um, there are countries where sociology is very influential. Uh, other countries where there's a lot of psychology. Um, and again, I think psychology and sociology have interesting things to say, but it, it's really yeah, important to always go back to say, does this really speak to the reality of education? Or does it become a, a different discourse? Um, so yeah, I, I think all those things have gone into the book in order to, to say, can we say in, in a very precise manner what we're actually doing all the time, where I think the, the language we use is, is not really precise. And the precision matters, I think. So it's not just that it's precision for people who like precision, but I think it also matters for how we think about teachers. If we say, well, teachers are just there to facilitate learning, but um, students don't really need teaching, then I think very quickly you begin to devalue teachers and all the work they do. So it also has political consequences. Yeah, but one of the things that, struck me is that of course there's you can take any object or any subject uh, in the world and go very deep into it and ask the most basic questions about it uh, like how do you walk or uh, something like that but you don't really need to <laughs> if, yeah. if I, unless it really interests you but for I think uh, how you lay it out in the book is that in order to really to justice to let's say the potential that education could have in our world we do need it because if you see, uh, if you have this worldview where people are basically brains walking around mm. and you just have to see what's the most efficient way to put information in the brain so they will, you know, do their work with as much efficiency as possible, you get a certain type of education. Whereas when you have a different worldview, uh, you get another type of uh, education. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the brain is an interesting example where there are a lot of people who think, oh, if we just have better neuroscience, we'll get better education. Um, and then I just remind people that Putin also has a brain. So it's not um, the, the brain and how it functions, but it's what we do as human beings with our brains. Um, and I, I find that remarkable that some of these promises like yeah, if we know how the brain works, then we have everything we know for education. Or people who say, if we know how memory works, then we we have the basis for education because education is just about memorizing knowledge and then being able to reproduce it. Again, what it misses is the fact that uh, I, I always have these extreme examples, but then I would say, of course, Hitler also had a memory. And that also works according to particular psychological laws. But that's precisely not the point of education that we can memorize. The question is, what do we do with our memories and how do they make a difference? Yeah. Yeah. It seems Plato already knew something about education as well. Yes. Eh? When in, yeah. uh, 
in the cave allegory, he says that it's not about putting sight in the eyes that cannot see, but it's about a kind of turning. Yeah, it, I think so. Uh, yeah, when you invited me for this, uh, I, I already warned you that I'm not a, a sort of a, a Plato specialist, but uh, I said it's funny that precisely in this book I go back to Plato. Um, on this fundamental insight that um, where he says, yeah, what we do in education is not to uh, produce the, the, the sight of our students or the perception of our students. The work of education is to turn their attention in a particular direction. Um, and I think that's, um, that's a profound insight. It already gives an answer to everyone who is too excited about psychology because uh, all the psychology tells you sort of how the hardware works, but what we do with it, in which direction we sort of try to put that, uh, that whole psychological uh, apparatus, that's the educational question. Um, you can even say, and, and that's the context in which I do it in the book, that that's the, the basic form of teaching. It's constantly, you can say, directing, redirecting the attention of our students in all kinds of ways. And that's a, quite a special process. If you walk into a shop and you try to do that with the, the people uh, queuing at the till, it would be silly. They probably yeah. call the police if you do it. But if you do that in a school, then you have a context where you say, yeah, that's the work we do. We, we meet a new generation and we say, have you seen that? Have you paid attention to that? Shall we spend an hour or a year or four years or whatever to really go deep into this? Um, so there is a really interesting connection with, with Plato there. Yeah, yeah let, uh, I first want to ask another question, but we... Uh can go into that uh, just just to say that this uh we i haven't really talked about plato in this podcast that much but what i like about it is that the allegory of the cave it's it's an you don't need to know anything about plato and people know it it's kind of like a um i i wouldn't maybe go so far as to call it the school but it's kind of an architecture where you can walk around you can discuss it and because this is a, an audio podcast, people are walking around or they're falling asleep or they're gardening or doing whatever while they're listening to this. I thought, well, this is kind of an image that everyone knows already yeah. and it provides a, a common ground. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what Plato meant any more than how, for instance, The Matrix or another movie uh, used yeah. it. Those are two kind of interpretations and ways in which you can do something yeah. um, with it. And of course, I do have to do an episode about Plato's philosophy uh, at uh, one point. Mm. But yeah, so this is episode 22. And, and yeah, education for me is the, the thing I get most excited about to think about it. And I think every episode so far, in one way or another, it comes back to education. For instance, we discussed with geoscientists Marcia Björnerud about mm -hmm. how what what is lacking in our society now to to adequately face uh, the climate crisis is a literacy in the field of geology. We have some ideas about geology that are really outdated, and anyway, that has a lot to do with with the way 
or education is organized in society as a whole. Um, just as one example of how, for me, everything comes back to education. And yeah. so the main, I, I guess uh, this is the first time I asked the main question of the podcast because it's a very broad question. So I hesitate mm -hmm. to to ask it, but uh, how do you see growth and development and learning in this world? <laughs> Very broad question. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a funny question because I would start by saying these three words have nothing to do with education. <laughs> and it's the problem of a lot of discourse and practice around education that it constantly keeps using these three words. Um, <clears throat> so I, I actually in the book say uh, development and learning are, are the two most uneducational concepts I can think of, and, and growth is somewhere there as well. So I should explain that, of course, because there is, uh, there is, some, there is something behind that, that question. Um, <clears throat> For me, the, the the main point of education is, I, I would say education is first of all a verb. So it's something educators do. Um, and I distinguish that from processes. And I think growth and development and learning in a sense are, are processes for me. So we cannot deny that living organisms like human beings grow, that they develop over time, uh, that they change as a result of the, the interaction, the environments they are in. Um, but all that for me is not education. It comes back to Plato, who would probably say, yeah, we cannot put growth or development or learning in human beings. That that will happen. The, the work of the educator is to ask the question, now in which direction should this growth go? What is a desirable development? What's an undesirable development? What's worth learning? What isn't worth learning? And also, how can we make sure that it's not constantly us as educators who, who answer those questions for our students, but also how we can encourage our students that those questions will become their own questions? But for me, that would be the, the briefest way to to say these terms in themselves, for me, are not educational terms because they, they lack a sense of direction. So my blunt examples, all, all the criminals in the world have grown, have developed, have learned, but they ended up doing unwise and, and horrible things with that. And you can say the, the, the real question is, what do you do with your own growth and development and learning? And how do you figure out what is worthwhile doing? And I think as as educator, we sort of stand sometimes in front of our students, often a bit on the side of our students to to say, have you have you seen that? Have you considered your growth in relation to those options? Um, so that's that's where I have a you could say a quite specific understanding of education. Um, but for me, the point is important uh, because um, I see so many people talk about education in these terms, 
where they say the, the work of the teacher is to support student learning. And if I was told that that's my job as a teacher, I would, wouldn't know what to do because I know that my students' learning can go in any direction. Uh, or in the, the Dutch law on primary schools, it says each child has the, the right to an in, un, uninterrupted uh, development. Again, I can't understand how you can make education out of that. That's funny because you emphasize that education is an interruption. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because, uh, yeah, development, again, can go in any direction. And sometimes you see students going in beautiful and wonderful directions. But sometimes you really worry. And then you have to step in as an educator and, and say, uh, wait a minute, where is this going? So is this idea of, of a student as a uh, like a plant or something or a flower that is growing and the job of the educator is to water it and to yeah. uh, like that, make sure it gets enough sunshine, protect it uh, against the wind maybe, and then, then it will just grow by itself. Yeah. And um, so... Again, it's an interesting metaphor because a lot of people say education is a process of cultivation. Um, and again, I get worried when I hear that and I, that I think, yeah, we cultivate plants and we, we know that not all seeds can become anything. Um, and we, we cultivate a plant in a particular way with light and shade and water and fertilizer. Um, but that's not the way of us human beings. Um, we are not plants with, a, you can say, particular pre-programmed outcome. We are, in a sense, undetermined beings. We have an open future. And therefore, rather than to, to be cultivated, um, again, I would say the work of education is to, to begin to remind children, young people, of the openness of their future. And therefore, both the, the possibility to, to give a direction, but also the need to, to do that. And that's very different, I think, from how we cultivate plants. Yeah, because if you cultivate plants, you are waiting for crop. You're, yeah. It depends on how you do it. Maybe, or even if you, if you grow flowers in your garden, maybe you want to produce something like enjoyment or a nice view or something like that. So you kind of have in mind already where you're going with this. Yeah. And of course, the plant also um, has in mind where it's going. Yeah. And, and yeah, what we do with plants is to make sure that we get the best out of what's in the plant, which does not necessarily mean that we get the most out of it. So sustainable farming really wants to make sure that, that plants can do well rather than that they are just pushed for for crop. But that's a very different process from yeah, how we as the existing generation meets the new generation. And that's that's uh, one example where I see so many people who talk about cultivation and flourishing uh, in the context of education. And then I think, well, wait a minute, is, is this really the right language? Is this right metaphor or are we are we missing something when we 
use that language. And what are we missing? Um, I, I would say what we are missing is, um, how shall we call it? These are big words, human freedom, the or the, the openness of, of human futures or the, the indeterminacy of, of how human beings grow up. Um, and that's where you can say when you say education is cultivation, um, it means that you will approach your students in particular ways. You will sort of put fertilizer in front of them, which can be books or culture or whatever. That's that's not unimportant, but the cultivation metaphor sort of reaches its limit yeah. where you suddenly acknowledge that there is a human being who can say yes to what you put in front of them or no, and who ultimately have to make up their own mind. So this is one of the points where, where you get very fundamental. You have to get very fundamental because then it becomes a question of what is a human being. Yeah. Or at least a human being in the context of education. Yeah. So it's partly about what we are assuming about human beings when we educate. Um, and yeah, that's where I think those assumptions and the language we use make a difference. Um, so one thing I do in the book, um, I always also, I'm, I'm a bit, what is it? A bit playful, playful. So I like to find interesting examples or, or things to play with. So um, in the book, I talk about two paradigms of education, and the one I call this cultivation paradigm. And then I, I have another paradigm, and the word paradigm we can of course discuss, which I call the existential paradigm. The, the point I try to make is to say, if we only think about our students or about education in, in naturalistic terms, in terms of biology and uh, organism, environment interaction, and, and all these ways of thinking that partly come from biology, psychology, um, but never ask the question or never even have a sense that as human beings, we we are originators of our own action. We have agency, we have freedom. We can say no, which I think is, is really important that I think most animals cannot say no, but we human beings can, and there we encounter our freedom. And when the student says no to us, we also encounter their freedom. That for me requires sort of a very different educational uh, paradigm or a different set of assumptions, or a different idea of the sphere in which we are, are working. Um, and yeah, what I do in the book is um, go back to a, a paper actually from Einstein and colleagues who asked the question whether, the, whether the, the prevailing theory in physics, whether that is complete. Um, and in a sense, I ask the same question to education and say, are the prevailing theories we use in education complete, or are they unable to, to capture this moment of human freedom and, and agency? Um, 
And there is quite a fundamental critique then to think, well, education is just applied psychology or it's just applied genetics or just applied neuroscience, because all that can never sort of give a place to to the question of freedom. And the, yeah, the strange phenomenon that we can say yes and no. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of this um, line from, from a poem by Khalil Gibran, uh, The Prophet. It's, I don't mm -hmm. think many people know that book, but that's actually about um, raising children on children, I think. And the first line is, your children are not your children. Yeah. And I think many of the theories that you, you name that are, well, they're used a lot. I'm an educational researcher. I know that. I see there are all these theories about this is the kind of professional we want to have if it's about a profession and what are the pathways to to achieve that yeah. but for me the danger is that it all hinges on the idea that we know uh, we let, let's say the where where let's say we're 18 plus at least mm -hmm. <laughs> um that we know what's best for the children that we know what, what they need uh and that that we know uh, what the society that they grow up in will will look like, what it will need from them and everything. And I think that if we look around us, particularly, you know, in this day and age, we don't really know so much. We're yeah. not, if you look in, on a, just because of the title world-centered education, if you look at the world, there are many big problems in the world and we haven't figured them out yet. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, does that connect to what you're, I'm trying to connect to what you're saying about this opening up, but yeah. you, you open, you, let's say as a teacher, you, you want this opening up to happen, uh, but you don't have the answer yourself. You don't have the, yeah, but so at this, yeah, yeah, sorry. But I so at the last thing at the same time, so you don't, you want to open up, uh, you want to acknowledge that there is, is freedom. But at the same time, you say that part of your job is to make sure that you don't just grow in any direction, but in a certain direction. So is there a paradox there, or how does that work? Um, there is a paradox, um, and you can find this paradox again in the, in the history of education and up to the present day, uh, where people say, well, it, it's one or the other. Either we as educators decide what children should know and how they should develop and who they should become. And then people say, well, but then you completely constrain and eradicate the, the freedom and the future of children. So we shouldn't do that. And rather, we should give children all the opportunity to grow and develop and play and discover. Um, so you have this pendulum. Uh, between child-centered education, which is very much to say, give them all the opportunity and all the good will flourish from that, and curriculum-centered education that says, no, the job of education is to, to get the knowledge and the values into the new generation. Um, and in a sense, you can say that's a kind of paradox or it's, it's an unresolved because um, it, it goes back and forth. It's, it's a bit a, a matter of fashion. When you look at schools in the Netherlands at the moment, you get all these new schools that also, oh, we need to give children the 
the space to discover and set their own learning goals and we shouldn't interfere with that. And then you have people say, no, school is about the transmission of knowledge and this is the knowledge and they should know that and we should push and, and test. Um, and you can say it's a paradox, but you can also say it's it's actually a very unhelpful um, choice that's been presented there. Uh, because if you, yeah, if you only have development, but without any content, it goes, it can go in any direction. So that's not education. If you only have a list of all the stuff you want to put into the new generation and are only concerned about that, but not about the new generation, that's also not proper education. So that already suggests that you need the, the two together in some way. And this is an old idea. Um, John Dewey wrote a book called The Child and the Curriculum, where he already says it needs both. And just to think that we only need children is, he calls it a really stupid idea. So I quote that as well. Uh, but I also think, yeah, just thinking about knowledge transmission is also really stupid. Um, so you, you want to create an opportunity for the new generation to to live their own lives. But that doesn't mean that you get into these yeah, romantic ideas where you say, oh, it's all growth and development and the more they can play and discover, the better it will be. Because the, the life and the playing and the discovery takes place in the real world. And that world makes a lot of things possible. We can lead fantastic lives where we are, but it also puts constraints and limitations on us. And that's, I think, the main point of this idea even of world-centered education, that we acknowledge that in all education, we can say we welcome the new generation into this world, but this world is real. Uh, yeah. And sustainability is a really good example of if, if we don't acknowledge that, if we just think, well, the world is partly just a a resource for us, and partly a dumping ground for all the, the rubbish we produce, then we do not engage with the, the reality of, of the world. And, and there is where I would sort of resolve the paradox by saying, yes, our job is always to, to give the new generation the best opportunity for their own lives, for their own freedom. But that freedom is not the neoliberal freedom of shopping, of just getting what you want, but it is to encounter a world, a social world, a natural world that's real and that puts limitations on, on what we can do. And to work in that, I think, is, is profoundly educational, but I would also say that's pretty urgent in our time because we, for a long time, have not acknowledged that the the planet puts limitations on us and that we need to come to terms with that. I see the same problem in, in democratic societies where more and more everyone just wants to do their own thing and sees every other human being as a hindrance to that. So for me, these you can say they are educational problems, but at a bigger scale, we are facing them as very urgent problems in our Maybe what is it? Our our stage of civilization. Yeah, I I wrote you already that the last time I talked to Marcia Bjornerud, mm -hmm. I asked her 
so it's quite a, a grim picture uh, that she's yeah. sketching as a geoscientist. And I asked her, what, what is for you, do you think is the most important thing that we need to do? And she thinks on the long term. And I expected something like we need to, I don't know, use this technology or have this intervention. And she said, educating girls and women. Yeah. So I want to ask you, <laughs> too, what kind of education do we just if we just focus on the because there are many other aspects, of course, like mm -hmm. developing as a person and other aspects of education, but just in the world centered education in a world where uh, we need to intervene, we need to change something radically as, as human beings on a fundamental level. What what are some of the concrete approaches in education that we could take? Um. So before we go to the concrete when I think there is sort of a, a principle behind it that's really important. Um, and it has something to do with a kind of sensitivity or awareness. Um, and in English, I would say a, an awareness that the, the world is real. Uh, so for me, the question of, of what is real is actually the central question here. And I think that problems with the environmental crisis have a lot to do with our inability, maybe, as a culture to, to engage with what is real, because what is real always puts limits upon us. Um, and then there is a beautiful Dutch word which I think you you in, you cannot play with that in, in the way in which it works in Dutch. It's called realiteitszin. And realiteit is reality. And zin means both, you can say, sense, so a sense of reality, but it also means an appetite for reality. It's a, a positive desire to want to engage with something. Um, and there, I think I would, yeah, identify really important quality to work on. How can you make sure that in, in schools and in education, students meet reality? And uh, reality, well, the, the main definition of real is that it's not what we thought it would be or wanted it to be. And how can we then uh, encourage and help the new generation to stay with that difficulty? So to have an appetite for for engaging with that difficulty. Um, that for me would be sort of the, the central principle in world-centered education. And there I would say it, it has a lot to offer for the whole question of sustainability and the question of, of democracy. And you start doing that in in simple ways, I, I often uh, talk about the importance of the, the crafts working with um, what in the English curriculum used to be called resistant materials. Yeah. Uh, wood, metal, clay, stone. Those are really important encounters where you meet a, a reality that is, uh, is what it is. And of course, you, you can build with clay but you cannot do anything with clay. So you have to begin to figure out what does the clay allow me to do? 
Um, and I think those those are very important sort of educational experiences. So if education is only textual, or if it's only virtual, then you precisely miss the the encounter with the real. And I often think if Donald Trump had only worked a bit more with clay when he was younger, <laughs> maybe we had a different world. Because he's he's a prime example of someone who just doesn't get reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good transition to um, just kind of seeing uh, if we can follow Plato's allegory and, and maybe you can use it to make clear yeah, where you, where you uh, agree, but especially also where you disagree. Because if I look at, yeah, Donald Trump is just an, an uh, effect of, uh, of our society and, and embodies something that, mm-hmm. that is everywhere. And, and I like this description of what we don't really know what's real because we live in a kind of fantasy. We live like uh, we are apart from nature and we can have unlimited growth and we can, yeah. you, can have, you can have all your desires fulfilled and you can have whatever you want in a material way. Yeah. And now the like the earth is uh, speaking back to us. Like uh, yeah. Latour also says, like it, it. We used to see it as a stage on which the human drama plays out, but now it's starting to <laughs> make yeah. itself known. So uh, that sounds like a description of the 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 shadows, like the initial condition where they're watching the shadows, uh, mm-hmm. but they don't really know what's real. Yeah. The um, so the interesting thing about the, the the cave allegory is that Plato frames it in terms of truth, not what is real, but what is true. And I think there is a an interesting issue there uh, because in in all these discussions about truth, which have been important discussions also in the philosophy of science and in political theory. Um, if you do not connect the question of, of what's true to the question of what's real, then you can end up in this bizarre relativistic universe of post-truth, where you say, well, all knowledge is just a, a matter of opinion, and it's a battle of the, the strongest opinion. So I also see that as an example of where um, the, the question of the, the real has has disappeared. Um, now, how that fits with Plato? Yeah, I wonder what you think about that. Um, where sort of the, the real there there's a, there is of course also a question about what what is real and what is just image. Yeah. The so for instance they see a shadow of uh let's say something scary uh, i don't know a lion mm-hmm. but this this for them we can say it's a shadow of a lion for them it's a lion yeah. so we can say well the lion is not uh real but their fear they have actual fear <laughs> when they yeah. see that lion mm-hmm. so it doesn't mean that's i that's what i always try to remind people is that well what the shadow realm People have the, have the um, tendency to project it on others. They say, well, they live in the shadow realm or they're influenced by mass media or whatever. No, it's just like how you and me are speaking here. It's There's nothing wrong with the shadow realm. I mean, depending on how your life goes, if <laughs> if you have a good life, it's it's a good place. If you have a bad life, it's a bad place. 
Yeah. And uh, I think one of the, because he, he goes, uh, he or she or they go up and they have a journey and then they come back and then they're in the same place, but they're not in the same place. Mm. So when they come back, they, they have clear distinction of, okay, it's not that these shadows no longer exist because those shadows are there. Yeah, but they don't. They say, "Oh, that's a shadow that looks like a, a lion because it's being projected by this yeah. statue and uh, no, yeah, or this whole story." But so this this is just let's say the initial condition is that they're in in sitting there in the cave and uh, they're watching the shadows and there's a shadow of a lion and they get scared and they don't know it. But then uh, I had to think of that because you describe education as an interruption because. Uh, yeah. They're unchained, but they don't want to. <laughs> yeah. And they're kind of dragged up to the surface. Um, so it's not very, for the person in question, later they realize, oh, this was actually good. But for the person in question, it's not really pleasant. Yeah. There is, yeah, that element as well. But um, quite often, well, I don't know how often, but of course, if if as teachers we do our work well, we... We also confront our students with things that that are not easy for them, or that they'd rather not engage with, um, at the personal level, but also just at the, the, the simple level of a curriculum of a, of a particular subject. Um, I I know from from my sort of experience in secondary school, I always liked the. The first weeks of uh, of the school year, where you get all these new books and new things, yeah. but then after a couple of weeks, you begin to realize, oh, I need to stay with it, and there is some hard work to do. And and then I often sort of lost interest a little. Um, <clears throat> so you can say that yeah, the work of education is in that sense interruptive because it uh, yeah it it steers students in a direction of things they may not have been looking for or it's not immediately in the, the sphere of interest, which raises the big question, what what justifies the, the work of teachers to do that? Which again is nice in the, the, the cave allegory. What How do we justify to unchain the, the people in chains and, and say, have a look and see what's happening behind you? So in the beginning, they're released and they're turned around, but their eyes hurt and they're blinded by the fire. They cannot see anything. Yeah. And this this person there is maybe, I don't know if it's a good or a bad teacher, but it sounds like a teacher because they're pointing to the, they're explaining everything to them. Yeah. So they're saying, well, these are, look, these are the statues. They're more real than the shadows. And all the, the released prisoner wants to do is they want to go back to their seat because that's, that's reality. Yeah. And again, there's something, yeah, I think really educational there that um, if you just sort of turn your student's head or say, look in that direction, um, if you do not know what you need to see there, you will probably not able to see it. So that's very nice about what what's in the allegory that initially they are unable to see, um, partly because the the fire is blinding them, and so it, it's overwhelming. Um, but it, it points at another issue about teaching, that it's not just about saying to students, look there, 
but it's also then to you can say to to draw them into that reality um, so that they can begin to see something. It's a very um, Kierkegaard actually talks about this where he says teaching is is double truth giving. So if we just say teaching is transmission knowledge to students, you can do that. But if they cannot recognize it as knowledge, there is no point in doing it, other than that they can maybe repeat it, but they have no idea what they are repeating. So the the real job is not just to to give students something, but also to give them a, a frame within which that begins to make sense. Um, and that that's a far more difficult thing to do. And some teachers are good at it, and some teachers are rubbish at it. They can talk about mathematics for hours, but they can never get sort of their students into their own mathematical world. Mm. So that's, I think, yeah, that's also in, in Plato's uh, allegory. But there is, if I can do one more thing here. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, One problem is, of course, um, that uh, you can use the allegory to criticize the allegory and say, okay, so someone is um, taken out of the change and and is, is allowed to view what's going on behind the scenes. But then that person can ask, well, wait a minute. Is this really going on, or is this another projection of another projection somewhere? That, that you can say is the problem when you, let's make it big, think about uh, our, our lives as human beings, just in terms of, you can say, viewing the world, understanding the world, gaining knowledge about the world that you always end up with this sort of epistemological uncertainty that you can say, okay, I've changed my perspective, but wait a minute, maybe this is also just a perspective and there is another perspective waiting around the corner. Um, So the other thing I do in the book is to say there's actually another question and that's not the question, what can be or should be my view of the world or my perspective on the world and what's the best perspective. But there is a question that goes in the opposite direction. Uh, what is the world asking of me? And I, I find that uh, a very interesting question and also a more educational question where you see your job as educator is not to give your students a particular perspective but actually to try to make them sensitive for all the the questions that are coming in their direction. Like the world that is speaking back to us and saying, uh, wait a minute, you you need to care for me, otherwise I will fall apart very soon. Yeah, so what is the world asking of you? I'm again thinking about uh, geology because a lot of people who maybe study geology, they work for the i mean the oil industry is <laughs> full mm. of geologists so I, f- I was just thinking of that as an example of you can teach something all the skills and and all the knowledge that you can give but then what what do they do yeah. of it and what is the world asking for them is the world asking them to 
have more more oil so maybe uh let's say uh, their society gets richer or we can do all the things that we want yeah. or is it asking um something else uh of you yeah and um yeah you can even say so these are it's never black and white but sometimes it's nice to to have another question um so if you are a good geologist you you can become more sensitive to all the complexities of of what you're doing and that can help you to to much better understand what what the questions are that you're actually encountering there mm-hmm. um, but of course then you can also yeah think of that knowledge in pure technological terms and say yeah this is just knowledge that allows me to pursue anything i want to do so if i want more oil i now know how to do it but you can also say well if i really understand where oil comes from that it's a limited resource then maybe you can begin to see oh, wait a minute this technological knowledge also confronts me with the the limitations i think the the same experience in the medical domain that with each new technology you have almost sort of a a new ethical dilemma coming with it is this technology yeah should it be used for what what ends what are the limitations keep being able to extend people's lives what actually does it mean to to lead a life well is that only a matter of longer and more or yeah you you know there's questions probably yeah 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 so if we uh, if we now <laughs> the next stage would be when the 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 person goes past the fire into the surface and that's uh when they finally they're finally uh, he says well finally uh, they're happy to be where they are <laughs> mm-hmm. for the first time and they can also see that I I guess this is this is also the frame that you're talking about because now they're able to put the frame on what happened before and and um yeah uh, the whole thing but i think also one thing that uh heidegger really emphasizes in his reading of the cave is the is the importance of time because mm-hmm. again in the surface they're they're blinded again and it will take time for them to adjust their uh eyesight yeah uh and time is uh, a very uh, limited resource in in our society i mean you can't even call it a resource um so yeah, there, there we can go different directions with this. I mean, I'm reminded of how you describe school also not just as a place or a space, but also as a time. Uh, and there's also the idea of givenness that. So it's indeed it, funny. This is often what we uh, promise our students. So we say, well, now it's hard, but once you've gone through that, you you will be very happy. Yeah. Uh, and. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes that happiness is is there for a, a short period. Uh, I think, yeah, many people have this experience. You work hard for something, finally you're there, and you think, well, is is this everything? From from the past, it looks far more exciting than yeah. where I'm suddenly uh, find myself in that situation. Like doing a yeah, PhD, for example, you work years and years and years, and you think, well, then I will be a doctor, and suddenly you're there, and it doesn't feel different at all. Um, so there is this question of the, yeah, you can say the, the, the promise of, of happiness. Um, 
and I think there is a danger of that. So as an educator, I would say that that's that's quite a misleading metaphor. We would say if we if give our students the, the the real understanding that will make them happy. Yeah, and promise them at one point everything will fall into place and yeah. you realize everything and you understand everything. Yeah. Um, and this is one way in which in education people think about emancipation, where they say, yeah, students start with, with limited and, and blinded and distorted views about themselves and the world. And if we just work and give them the, the real story about where everything really is, then it will liberate them. Um, and it, it, it changes things, but I don't think that that is the, the, the way of emancipation to become liberated from sort of, yeah, wrong or limited or distorted ideas and end up in a situation where everything is clear and, and undistorted and no longer ideological. Um, so that, that promise, I think, we cannot deliver. And there may be a, a problem there in the allegory that if that promise on, is on the horizon, um, that promise itself is maybe a, a lie, if we can use that word. It makes you also wonder about then coming back into the cave and, and, and what happens there. Um, Oh yeah, that but that's the next next stage, right? Because uh, they don't stay there; no. they go back into the cave. And that's uh, <laughs> I guess this was the question I was most looking forward to asking because it's not. I mean, if you would know all this in advance, you wouldn't go to that school if you want to be successful in ex in in uh, society. Because they're you know they're on the surface; they they get everything, they're happy, and then they go they go back into the cave. Yeah. Uh, their eyes are not adjusted to the darkness anymore. So all the games they play, so all the successes in life, they're not good at it anymore. People make fun of them. They say, well, you've just ruined your eyesight. Yeah. And they, if they want to show them, but look what I've shown, yeah, then they try to kill them, of course. Yeah, Plato is also speaking about Socrates and what happened to him. Yeah. But I was just one because if, if you speak about world-centered education, here is a case of someone who has at least realized something that maybe the others in the society didn't realize and they go back but they're it makes them actually less successful they can't use it yeah and i really like that because i like that idea because they've realized something let's say they've had this courage to to embrace something truthful Mm. and it's so deep that that they uh he says uh, he would rather be like a, a poor peasant at the surface than the most successful person in that society yeah but it's not yeah if so the, i guess maybe this is about the relationship between education and society and is it the job of education to make people successful and perform and you know uh that's why parents want their children to go to a good school so they'll you know at least they'll have a choice if they want to be a lawyer or politician or whatever yeah um so yeah again i think there's a big educational theme there where you can say um education that really changes you um that's education where there is no way back 
and that um, that can be a good thing, but it can also mean that if you want to go back to the easier life without the difficult questions or the, the adjusted life, that's no longer an option because you will also know that that yeah that there is a wider frame or or a different uh, possibility, um, which again makes the whole question of of how do we justify education uh, quite a big one. Uh, because even if we do it with good intentions, we interfere in, in lives in a way that that cannot be um, reversed. Um, and I think, yeah, here you find the bigger political questions around education. There's a lovely distinction from uh, it comes from Britain mid 19th century, where you had a whole movement of um, self emancipation of the the lower classes. And they said, in, in, in school, we get useful knowledge, but what we really want, they called it really useful knowledge. And they said, useful knowledge is the knowledge that, that allows you to do a job and, and earn an income and be a good citizen. But the really useful knowledge is the knowledge where you see that the, the boss of the factory is making far more profit uh, out of your labor than that you are. Mm. Um, so the whole question of yeah whether knowledge and education can emancipate and, and what that means uh, is a big question. Um, I don't think that as as educators we can give our students this promise that we will emancipate them. Um, what I do in the book instead is. I sort of approach that from the opposite angle, where I say our our responsibility as educators is to give the, the new generation, the, the children that are born in the world, a, a fair chance at their own freedom, their own existence as subject of their own life. And there is an, an emancipatory sort of discussion in the background, because when I look at modern societies, uh, to a large extent, they are not interested in, in people who are critical or who think. To a large extent, societies are interested in people who, who buy a lot so that the economy keeps growing, who behave well so that we don't get people protesting on the streets uh, against uh, injustices. Um, so we have a society that I think is interested in, in people being objects, you could say, rather than subjects. And there, I would say, as educators, we need to step in and say, no, everyone deserves a chance to be a subject of their own life and, and use their freedom well and not be immediately sucked into being a good consumer. It, I mean, it's a silly idea to be a good consumer. But I think uh, if you look at all the social media and the advertising that goes straight into young children's lives, they're constantly being told be a good consumer by this identity, by that stuff. And the, the, the sooner and the more, the, the better. Yeah. And there you can, there I also connect it to the, the time of the school where I say, do we still as a society create sort of um, 
little places and moments where we try to disconnect the new generation from all these pushes and pulls and all these seductions so that they can, and again, there is something platonic here, so that they can have a perspective on this and, and do not think that they, that that world is the only possible world. But then there's also a problem because the schools are uh, funded and determined and set up by, let's say, the society, the, the oh. politics, right? And if I look at the Netherlands, but I think it's in, in many countries, it's this way how they look at it as you, first of all, you need basic skills or the skills for the profession that you're studying at. So if you uh anyway i don't need to explain it. that's that's clear that's that's why you go to school to learn stuff uh, about uh, this field and then we also want to have this sense of tradition of um of values um we want to uh, so there's even in the, in the netherlands a, a political party that wants to start their own school because they have yeah. a different idea about our history and what's important in our history and which values should be uh, transferred. Yeah. And um, so we, so far we've, we've uh, managed to avoid to speak about the, the distinction that you're most famous for, I think, between qualification and socialization, which are these yeah. two. And then the third one is subjectification. Yeah. How you describe it is so this, so you start with the basic skills, then you also want to have them function in society, socialized, let's say. And if there's time, you can also focus on, yeah, having them discover themselves or, or be autonomous uh, students. And your proposal is to reverse this order, right? In, in yeah. priorities. So, yeah, I make this joke where I say, okay, even people who... who are in favor of a, a broad conception of educational quality, very quickly that they're instructed to say, yeah, we have to start with the, the knowledge because that's the basis, the knowledge and skills. And then of course the, the values and the traditions and practices. And, and then my ironic point is to say, well, and if there is time left, then we can maybe be interested in the student as person and in their own freedom. Um, but when you put it like that, I always hope that people immediately see there's actually something silly there because you are not just putting knowledge into a robot. There are real human beings there leading beautiful, difficult, messy, fantastic lives. And we want them to become more knowledgeable, more skillful. We want them to have a sense of orientation. And we we care about that their lives. So in that sense, you can say the whole question of how they can exist as subject should always be at, at the heart of everything. And even this whole reference to the basics um, is politicians do it again and again. And I don't understand how they always get away with it, where they say, the basics first, and the basics are reading and writing, arithmetic yeah. or science or something like that. Um, a, they forget that, that reading and writing are highly complex and highly political activities. It's just referring to that in a little piece where I say, look at Salman Rushdie, and you see that writing is not a skill, 
not a cognitive motor skill. Writing is a political act with huge consequences. Um, but also as a society in which everyone can read and write and count, but where no one cares about the environment or other people or democracy, I would say that's not a society that has the, the basics um, right. So it's it's quite remarkable that, yeah, as I said, politicians always get away with saying, oh, the basics first, and everyone get in panning and say, yeah, reading, writing, very strange. Yeah, and I like how you want, I think the second chapter is called what, so we can ask what, what is the school that society needs, but you ask what is the society that the school needs? Yeah, yeah. And if I, well, I've talked about it in other episodes as well, but I'm, I'm an assistant professor of educational research, but I'm highly, highly critical of the education system. Sometimes that I don't even know does it any make any sense what what I do because I see so many good ideas your ideas as well but the system is so it's so political and economic and um uh so we we inherent so education is about transferring whatever knowledge skills other other parts as well but we also transfer the idea of what education is what the school is so the the our politicians and our leaders they have gone to school themselves. They haven't experienced another kind of school, which is maybe an argument for Plato's idea that we need to have this special training or something. Mm, right. um, but it just makes me wonder what you are proposing if if you were able to to bring into practice this idea. Um, is that possible within the current education system or would you need to start from the ground up? Um, so I'm inclined to say it's possible. Um, also because what I'm proposing is not, um, well in one sense, I think it's very radical, but it, in another sense, it, it's 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 going for you can say the third way or the middle between this pendulum this the people say it's all about the student and the child or it's all about the curriculum so we we have everything we need in front of us the question is what we do with it so in that sense i would say it's not that we need to destroy all school buildings and and all the laws and and start from scratch um I think this idea of, of world-centered education, which implies a profound critique of child and student-centered education, a profound critique of curriculum and knowledge-centered education. Um, but it's, it, it can be done within, I would say that, yeah, the structures, the infrastructure we have. Um, so we, without, sort of even suggesting that I'm fantastic. I, I do world-centered education every day. I do it in, in highly performative universities, but even those, I think, provide opportunities for, for doing something else, uh, something more meaningful. Um, the only thing I can say is that you need to have an awareness of what you're doing and why you're doing things 
differently. And one worry I have is, as you said, a lot of people get educated in these systems. That gives them a sense of what education is, and they just reproduce that. Um, which is another argument for, for coming back to the, where we started, why education deserves much better theory, much more thoughtfulness in order to, to see what, what are we really doing, what is essential, what, what actually is, is not that important, what matters, what doesn't matter. Okay, you give an example of what what is it that you do different, or what what is different about being in your classroom, uh, a world centered education versus another classroom? Um, I I think what shall I say there? Uh, it, it, it's it's quite interesting to speak about your own work as an educator. <laughs> Because, it, yeah, there's always a, a trap that the story you tell is better than what you actually do. So, but let, let's try. I think the, for me, the most important thing sort of in my, my awareness as teacher is I always want to confront, but that does not necessarily need to look sort of very confrontational. My students with their own freedom, and when needed, I also want to make their, uh, I would say, their infantile desires visible to them. And for me, these are two sides of the same coin. Um, I think infantile desires or, or infantile ways of being is where you never raise questions about your own desires and think that other people can solve your problems for you. And I meet that a lot in higher education, particularly in Britain, where, where students now, when they are from the UK, have to pay already £10,000 a year just to, to sit in a lecture theatre. They haven't eaten anything or at, they had a place to, to stay. For students from, they used to be called international students, but it's now everyone from outside of the UK, they have to pay £24,000 a year just to to have the privilege of, of meeting lecturers. So they very quickly are pushed in a kind of consumer position where they say, look, I've paid for it. So it's your job as a, as a tutor or a lecturer to make sure that I succeed. Yeah. So giving me uh, a low mark is not an option for you because we've paid for it. Um, and of course you understand that, but those are, yeah. Sort of inf infantile ideas that you that you want to interrupt. So I encounter that as well. Um, to to always sort of remind students of their own freedom um, doesn't mean that we sit together and that I tell them you are free human beings. Um, I I do that by actually putting the world in front of them giving them tasks that are specific, concrete, um, often not immediately motivating or nice, and never what they say that they want. And for me, those are all qualities of world-centered education, where even in a, in a classroom setting, you try to, to give your students things 
where it's not just a task where you say, here's a book and here are the 10 questions on which you will be examined, but where you say, here is a book and I have no questions as teacher, but in three weeks, I want you to come up with 10 questions about the book. And those are little things where you say it's not just that you can read the book and can reproduce and can memorize it, but where I would say, here's a book and the book has its own integrity and it's it's for you now to come into a relationship with the book. For me, these are all qualities of what I would say, what I do in a world-centered way in my teaching, which is always to say there is something here that is real and that deserves attention. And where I sort of point in the direction of my students and say, and you have a job here to do as well. And I cannot tell you entirely what that job is. Um, I'm pretty confident that students get a lot out of that. So it's not a form of therapy where I want to be difficult for my students and hope that they become resilient. I think I would almost say that's nonsense. Um, so the, the book matters and the stuff they encounter in the book. And, and when I work with, with teachers in professional development programs, the, the, the stuff they engage with is also important for them in terms of the content. But it always has this extra layer where I say, I'm not here to tell you what you will get out of it, um, but there is a job for you to, to encounter. Mm. Um, and that, you can say, these are very minor things, but when you work with, with that kind of awareness as a teacher, I think it it creates significantly different educational situations and, and trajectory. So then then this kind of education would be possible in, in the current system if we if the teachers um uh, have a kind of education as well, uh, um, so to speak. Yeah. So teachers need to know what they're doing. And again, I would say that's why theory is important so that you can begin to see what, what are we actually doing? And it, you need a bit of uh, courage, but yeah, just a little bit. Um, but I think the most important thing is that you have a sense of what you're doing and why you're doing it. Then you begin to push back against the system in order to see how well, how resilient the system is. And a lot of education systems are not very resilient. They they fall apart when you push <laughs> in the right spot. Yeah. Yeah, one of the most difficult things I, I find if I'm uh, asked to design like a, a, a course or something like that is that I have to write this document where I specify the learning goals. Uh, yeah. Because I don't, I don't, how do, especially because of my teachings are usually around philosophy. And if not, I try to put something in there. How do I know what they're going to learn or what, what they, what they want to learn? You can't. Yeah. Um, so either then you leave those sections blank and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Or you write something that is, is true, but so complicated that the bureaucrats don't know what to do. And I've, I've, yeah, used different strategies where, for example, in the box learning outcomes, I said, 
in this course, I take a virtue-based approach and therefore it's impossible to identify learning outcomes. But I can describe the, 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 the person qualities that I want to explore with my students. So there's text there, but you say, look, learning outcomes is a silly idea, but I have something better here. I can tell you why I'm doing what I'm, I'm doing. Um, but I also, um, yeah, I, I had great joy developing and teaching a program where there was no assessment. Um, and when we were developing it, uh, most of our colleagues said, you can't do that. You're, you will not be allowed to do that. And we found a gap in, in the system that did allow us to do that. And again, I would say it, it created yeah, a much more significant education where students also said, this is much better. We want more of this. So that that makes me optimistic, but it yeah, it's little steps. But I I am what is it more? Uh, I would rather sabotage the system than that I would try to to change the system because that's that's an impossible task. Yeah, to to take on a whole system, but you can find the gaps where where there is movement possible. Mm. I think. One of the things that, that this shows that this is possible is that the school is not the building or the the, mm -hmm. the papers uh, that tell you, you know, what are you going to do in this class and everything. So uh, uh, one of the other things uh, we can relate to Greek is, is uh, skola, yeah. <laughs> the word school from skola. And of course, it's one of the first things if you were being taught uh, ancient Greek is what they tell you is that school actually means free time. Yes, it's yeah. just very funny for for the students at that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what is your idea about school? What is, what is it as it if it's not the building, if it's not the yeah. whole apparatus and the logistics around it? What is the essence of? Um, so for the essence, I, I would go back indeed to the the Greek word, um, and. Yeah, nowadays we have silly ideas about free time because we think free time is, the, is leisure time where you yeah. can do what you want. Um, and I would read that differently by saying free time is, you can say, time that is not yet claimed by others. It's time that's not yet determined in terms of what should happen there. You can almost say free time is, is emancipated time. It's time set free from, say, the, the logic of work or the logic of usefulness or the logic of production or all these things that societies want from schools as well. Um, I, I often tell the story where I say the school comes out of a double history so one history is where you say when modern societies evolve they lose their educative power so when you grow up on a farm you learn everything you need to know to become a farmer and it's it's easy and clear but when work moves to factories or offices then by just hanging around the next generation doesn't pick up what it needs to know and you also see the requirements for knowledge and skills become more uh, specialistic. So then the school emerges and you can say, the school has a job to do for society. 
and I, I want to take that seriously because I think, yeah, that's part of why we have schools. There's nothing wrong with that. But I then always say that's one history of the school. And there is this other, much older history of school as scholar, as precisely the, the time outside of work, the time outside of all the demands from society. Um, partly the, the challenge for the school is how to stand within these two histories, to know that as a school you have a job to do, but also have to take care of this free time. And I think that's, that has become more difficult nowadays with so much expectation from society. Um, I also think that that free time has become much more important in, in our times because society is so omnipresent with all of its demands and all of its seductions. So I was talking about, yeah, being a good consumer or all the, the identity options that are constantly bombarding young people via social media. And yeah, we're sorry to interrupt. Uh, we did that episode on Bernard Stiegler with Daniel Ross. Uh -huh. So that, that very much connects to that, that the next move of capitalism was to start to, let's say, cultivate this free time, uh, offering options, what to do. And so that it also becomes, yeah. the free time is not, is leisure time and it also becomes a resource. Yeah. You can say what it's what it does there is to constantly try to distract human beings from their own existence as subject. I think the economic sphere and advertising is a good example of that. Uh, populist politics does the same by by saying all these promises, if you vote for me, I'll give you everything you want. And, and of course we know that that's never gonna happen. Um, so we live in societies that tell us constantly desire more, there are no limits. And very quickly, you can say that that begins to undermine your ability to, to stand there as a subject and, and consider yeah, where you are in relation to it. And for me, that's a very important argument for saying we need to free up time first of all for the new generation this free time of the school so that we as i put it in the book give them a, a fair chance at their own life as subject and that you are not constantly sort of uh, completely washed away by all the impulses and everything that's constantly bombarding them um, so for me that's that's also the argument for the second history of the school, that if we do not give that time to the new generation, we are actually throwing them on the street almost when they are born. And, and when you have it as that image, you see how dangerous that is and how how it undermines their possibilities to, to step into their own lives, I would say. Now, whether the, the school as a system can still do this, I think that's a really big question. Um, to tell a minister of education that the school is, is also there 
to to waste money to waste time to do things where we do not know what will come out of it is is a difficult message uh, and it's really important to say why it's an important message and why that is part of what we should do with our the, the monies we invest in the school and then if if the school can no longer do that um, are there other places where that can happen i already mentioned this distinction between useful knowledge and really useful knowledge and the the movement is called the the charters charters and these were people who said our education system no longer gives us the free time we need for our own emancipation. So they started Sunday schools where they said, Sunday is the only free time and we're going to claim that for our education. And I find that such an interesting historical example. Yeah. yeah. But those are examples still of, of a group organizing that have yeah. meeting to to have the resources and everything so it's it's they create another institution uh let's say um and i'm very interested in this idea that if education and and school the true meaning of or the deeper meaning of school is so fundamental that ideally it would take place in school but it's not the school is not doesn't have a monopoly on scola and i'm interested in how in other areas of life you can have this as well yeah. of course i have to say we are very privileged we live you know in rich countries and and so you need to have some basics as well but once you once you have these basics yeah, yeah. <laughs> not saying this because this is a podcast but podcasts are a way in which people can have access to something for free uh, you can you know you reading is different if you if you listen to a podcast of an hour you need to you need to use this hour and while you're doing something else and i'm wondering on on your vision and how is 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 an institution a necessary condition for education to take place um i'm i'm inclined to to jump on the word institution because i think that's precisely the difference between an institution and a function. Yeah. So if the school becomes entirely functional, it just does a job for society. But I think good institutions always have this, this protective quality uh, where they say, yeah, we need to organize something to help ourselves to, to be better. Um, so yeah, it, it, it then is, is the question, if the school is no longer the um, the one who who is interested or can create this free time, how then do we do it? Um, we can do it individually. So I really like the the other question you sent about what does it mean to be a, a student, and there is something there where you can well, maybe my my first answer to the question how to be a student would be uh, well you have to to claim free time you have to um, 
say not this is sort of my time that is in my possession, but where you say here is an other kind of time that I'm now going to use to do something where I do not know what where it will lead. Yeah. So as to, so a student, you can make the case for for free time. Um, I'm also thinking about the. Um, Grundtvig and the, the tradition of study circles and, and adult education in uh, Denmark, which is a real sort of societal movement where adults said, we still want this free time and we're going to get together to make sure that we have this free time also in relation to our working life so that it's not just the, the, the free time for the for the preparation for the children, but that actually we need this time throughout our lives. And I think, yeah, the People's University and those kind of movements have come out of that. And these are examples to find bottom-up forms to claim this time again for, for your own education. Yeah. And what about the idea of, uh, I think there's also like a, a school which is called the school of life, but I mean, yeah, the idea that, uh, well, actually, this is one idea I subscribe to is that, let's say the nature of life on earth is you can have many, give many names to it. Mm -hmm. What what are we here to do? And yeah. one that is closest to my heart is to say life is a school. Yeah. And then it becomes the question, what is a school? And then there also in society, I, ideally you have schools, but it doesn't mean you're only learning that school, but though, you know, relationships are, uh, can be a type of school, uh, can be not necessarily if you have relationships, you're in school because that's relates to what you say about where you can, it's not just about learning, no. but it's about once you have this, this, yeah, this idea of subjectification that you, for in, just to give one example, because I talked to Mika Ball uh, before, mm -hmm. uh, who really emphasizes also taking time uh, with art. So one of the things you can do is is go to a museum and just sit in front of a painting, but sit there for one hour and see what happens. Yeah. That for me would be, this is what I did in my holiday because I wanted to try it out. And, and because I don't know anything about art, I think, okay, what but what do I get? And, and I felt there was something happening there, but of course there was not a teacher uh, unless you see maybe Rembrandt as a, as a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, so if I uh, tie a couple of things together, I, I would say, a student for me is someone who is is willing to be taught and that's very different than to say a student is someone who's willing to learn because if you're willing to be taught you say i'm open to the possibility that something comes to me that is outside of my control and my choice but that may speak to me in good ways or in, in troubling ways. Um, and that's why I don't like the phrase lifelong learning, because that can be 
also abused in all kinds of ways. I think lifelong learning in most countries now means the lifelong duty for the lower classes to to pay for their own uh, upskilling and employability. Yeah, and keeping up with uh, developments in society. and yeah. But if you say, so lifelong learning is a duty we put on some people. Uh, whereas if you talk about, yeah, permanent education, you can say, well, we, education should be a right throughout our lives. But for me to be a student is, yeah, to open you up to to the possibility that that something may teach you. And then I think if you if you are able to spend an hour with one painting, it may begin to speak to you in all kind of, of ways that you didn't expect. So you need to give it that time. Um, and then I think, so life as a school or the world as a school, I would always approach that from life teaches us things. And in that sense, there is this yeah, scholastic quality in, in life as well. But then we need to not be there as a learner who constantly wants to gather and learn more stuff, but we need to, to give it time so that things can, can happen to us. The arts can do that. I'm quite close to music, and what I like about music is music takes its own time. So you, you can say, okay, I'll, I'll play this Beethoven piece twice as fast because, well, then it's over, but then it's no longer that piece. So that already helps you to get into a, a different time. And visual arts can also, yeah, draw you in, into a, a different a different time and i think there's something very educational and, and very political there and what about nature just going out i'm just trying to yeah. see how far i can yeah how far you push the idea of education can a forest teach you something yes so i'm, I'm not a, a foresty person <laughs> but i i read a nice piece this weekend of someone who said that if you give something attention, it begins to open up itself. And her example was uh, paying attention to birds and bird song. Yeah. Um, and she moved from a city to a farm and then someone said, well, pay attention to the birds. And over time, that became a whole universe that she never was aware of. Uh, so it can happen with nature as well, but it's it's not yet where I am in my uh, my school of life to to put it in that way. Yeah, maybe if you have this because you said that this double truth, so you need also kind of a frame. So uh, yeah. if you go with with a, a guide or something in nature, they can of course hey listen to this and, and point you to distinctions and everything yeah. like that. Yeah, and that's um, yeah, that's quite fascinating. Where where someone else sort of tries to to introduce you into in what they are able to to observe, what they are able to to see, and that's that's a basic educational gesture. Yeah? 
Well, thanks so much for this conversation. Maybe the, yeah. the final question is uh, because different people listen to this podcast who are not necessarily in education. Why would your book be interesting for them? Um, I think partly because it asks some very basic questions, but what I also hope is that uh, the book sort of opens sort of the, yeah, I would say the beautiful complexity of education, that there is so much happening in what we think that we uh, already know and that there are so many fascinating questions to ask and observations to make. So for me, it would be like if, if I would go into a wood with someone who knows all about birds and suddenly I realized, look, there is a completely different wood here, but it has never been on my radar. And I just hope that some people, when they read the book, they say, wait a minute, there is a whole educational universe here <laughs> that I wasn't aware of. That I would be very pleased if something like that uh, would happen. Yeah, me too. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. And thank you for listening. This is an independent educational podcast. You can support me through Patreon or go to livefromplatoscave.com for other ways to support the production of this podcast.